What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hello, good friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. And welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable, where we get a chance to catch up on the big news of the past week with three top political reporters. Well, less than two weeks to go before we go off the financial cliff. But this week, there was less talk of Armageddon and more talk of a deal. So what's going on? Joe Biden felt confident enough that things would work out that he headed off to Japan. After the longest tease in politics, it looks like Ron DeSantis will announce for president next week. But will he finally criticize Donald Trump in public by name? Meanwhile, Disney announced that it's canceling plans to build a new $1 billion employee campus in Florida. Did DeSantis's war against Disney backfire? And despite political backlash to the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, the Republican Party seems hell-bent on pushing a nationwide abortion ban. Is that smart politics or suicide? Well, here today to sort uh, that all of that out and maybe even more for us, David Jackson, national political correspondent for USA Today. Hello, David. Hello, Bill. How are you doing? Maya King. I'm great, thank you. Political reporter for the New York Times, based in Atlanta. Hi, Maya. Hi. And Sharish Date, White House correspondent for HuffPost. Uh, hello, Sharish. Hey there, Bill. So, uh, Sharish, let me start with you. I mean, what the hell is going on? Uh, there was another big summit me- on the debt ceiling, another big summit meeting at the White House this week. Uh, and Democratic House leader, uh, Yakim Jeffries, echoing optimism on the part of Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy, says it looks like we're all now on the same page. Here is leader Jeffries. The fault is not an option. Everyone agreed that that was the case. The fault will be a disaster for the American people. And it was a very positive development that everyone agrees we're going to work with the fierce urgency of now over the next week or two, reach an agreement, avoid the default, and continue our efforts to be there for everyday Americans. Sharish, are things really that positive? Well, that's interesting. You said everyone agrees default would be a catastrophe or disaster or whatever you said. No, not everyone agrees that. I mean, the the de facto head of the Republican Party at his town hall said, yeah, well, you know, maybe default wouldn't be so bad and we ought to do it unless uh, the Republicans get the spending cuts they've been demanding and we're going to have to do it anyway eventually. So we may as well. Wait, what? How many of the people in, in, in McCarthy's caucus will buy some or all of that? And, you know, he he has a very slim majority. It took him more than a dozen votes to get the speakership in the first place. I think maybe um, Congressman Jeffries is a little bit a majority, a minority leader Jeffries is a little bit optimistic. Uh, and in the end, I wonder how many Democratic votes are going to be have to be paired with Republican votes in order to get whatever it is that passes. So, um, yeah, people like to... Uh, 
like to reassure the markets particularly. But, uh, you know, until we get really close and see what the vote count is in the House, I'm not sure the war- the optimism is that warranted. David, we've seen this rodeo before. <laughs> How many yes. times, right? Yes, it's, um, like another, it's like another Fast and Furious movie. Yeah, exactly. So uh, how do you think it's playing out? Um, I, I think people are just as disgusted with Washington as they've ever been. Uh, it is an unusual position. I think Sharice is right. that it, It's all up to McCarthy. I, I think just about anything he puts before the House, I think, would get enough votes between Republicans and Democrats to pass. The question is, would it be a package that uh, McCarthy's right wing objects to? And would they use this as an excuse to move against him? It's really all about the Kevin mm. McCarthy stewardship of the party rather than an actual package to get the debt ceiling raised. In other words, you think he's promising um, a, a deal that he may not be able to deliver? Well, I think he can deliver it. But the question is, if he delivers it, will that cost him his speakership? Ah, I think that's the real question. I think that's that, that's where the lick log comes in, because I, I, I am fairly optimistic about the ability of Congress to pass something to raise the debt ceiling. I think the majority in both parties are in agreement with that. The question of these 20 or so right wingers who just want to keep the thumb on Kevin McCarthy and seem to want everything in these negotiations as opposed to mm-hmm. a deal. And uh, that's the question, Park, is what those what those 20 want to do about it. So my uh, uh, Sharish uh, mentioned that in last week's CNN debate, uh, Donald Trump weighed in on this and bas- and said, hey, you might as well default now because you're going to do it sooner or later. That's not what I said when I was president, but that's what I'm telling you now. Go ahead and default, right? Basically, who cares? Uh, is that having any impact at all, do you think, on the negotiations? I mean, I think there is a contingent of Republican representatives, sort of this burn it all down caucus, I probably heard that and thought that it gave them, you know, a green light to, to to try to burn it all down or at least to see what happens if the government does default. And of course, there are the political calculations here. The fact that this would happen as Joe Biden has announced his run, a second run for president, I think this is uh, a chance for some, particularly in the Freedom Caucus, to try to sink things and then point to Joe Biden and kind of blame it all on mm. him. Um, you know, there's the letter from the Freedom Caucus that came out early yesterday that called for, I believe the language was, quote, no further discussion um, on legislation to raise the debt ceiling bill. You know, we know that the rest of the Republican caucus is not going to go along with this, but that's a pretty solid, I mean, considering the fact that Republicans do not have such a large majority in the House, that's enough people to really cause more issues down the road. So I agree with Sharice that, you know, the fact that um, the minority leader, Jeffries, is uh you know, suggesting a lot of optimism here is good and can probably calm the markets and keep everybody um, on one accord as best as he can. But it does not seem at this stage that there is any guarantee um, that both parties will be on the same page and be able to raise the debt ceiling in a, in a timely manner. Now, none of us are part of these negotiations, of course. Very few people are. We don't know what all the details are. But one issue, Sharice, that has surfaced is the issue of work requirements as a price Republicans want um, for everybody to pay for raising the debt ceiling. And President Biden has got right in the middle of this. Here is the president when he was asked about where he stands on so-called work requirements this week. I'm not going to accept any work requirements that's going to impact on medical health needs of people. I'm not going to accept any work requirements that uh, 
go much beyond what is already. Well, I, I voted years ago for the work requirements that exist, but it's possible there could be a few others, but not anything of any consequence. Is this a deal breaker, Sharish? No, I mean, I, I'm not sure what he's what he was trying to say exactly. Because on the one hand, he said that he's not going to do anything that's going to accept uh, changes to Medicaid, basically, uh, and the eligibility for that. And the other says, well, maybe I'll accept some stuff, but nothing of any consequence. Well, you know, first of all, the idea that people are willingly not looking for work so that they can enjoy Medicaid and food stamps is nuts. I don't know if anyone's ever looked at how much what the benefits are, but that's insane to actually believe that. Um, nonetheless, that's what a lot of Republicans are demanding. Um, and I don't know how Biden can hang on to the Democrats and particularly the Democratic base that he needs for re-election and give in to some sort of, um, or even a, a, even a modest change to those work requirements already. Because, you know, um, Medical care, there's there's a large percentage of Democrats who believe that that is an absolute right, not a privilege. And so they want uh, <laughs> they want single payer. They want Medicaid for all. They're going to lose their minds if, if they make it even mm-hmm. harder for people to get Medicaid. All right. So let's jump into the fun world of the Republican Party primary. Uh, it is <laughs> we keep hearing different dates. But uh, David Jackson, the latest date, and you've done just some late reporting on Ron DeSantis, is that he plans to officially announce next Wednesday. Uh, what do you hear, and how how strong are his chances? Um, I'm hearing something similar. Uh, the he's the, the announcement is going to be the filing of the paperwork with the Federal Election Commission, and I, the feeling I'm told that he needs to do this because he's going to be meeting with donors in Miami. Uh, next week. And uh, in order to actually raise money, he actually has to have a campaign. So the feeling is that something will be in place either that day or the day before. And uh, certainly along the way, he'll he'll be say say something in public about that. But they're also planning the big traditional announcement speech for the next week, sometime after Memorial Day, (laughs) that next Tuesday or Wednesday. And uh, then we'll be off to the races. He'll go to take the traditional trips to Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. And he will finally be an official candidate, although my position is he's been a candidate for months and that's the way we've been treating him. Right. Um, So, uh, Maya, you're based there in the South. Um, It looks like, uh, at least according to Politico this morning, that somebody may beat DeSantis to the uh, to the starting line. And that is Tim Scott from South Carolina expected to make his announcement on Monday. Uh, Again, you've seen him up close. Is that is that what you hear? And uh, how do you rate his chances? Yes, that's right. Um, it's sort of all systems go for Team Scott, uh, planning to, um, and he's planning to announce his run for president Monday, May 22nd. And at first, I thought that this would perhaps be complicated by DeSantis's entry to the race, that the Florida governor may um, suck up some of the oxygen from, from Scott's uh, announcement. But you know, Tim Scott has already been running a campaign largely under the, the umbrella of a presidential exploratory committee. Mm-hmm. So he spent the last month already raising money and traveling to early primary states, namely Iowa, New Hampshire, and um, of course has a bit of a home state advantage in being from South Carolina, which is another key early primary state. But one thing that separates Scott from the rest of the field or from many of the sort of second tier candidates who aren't named Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis 
is the fact that he will enter the race pretty cash flush. He's coming in with about $22 million. So um, Mm. we've reported this morning at the New York Times that his campaign plans to immediately start an ad blitz as soon as he enters the race with more than $6 million blanketing Iowa and New Hampshire. And that's going to, in the campaign's view, kind of put him, you know, at least on some um, give him more of a of a leg up and be able to compete uh, with people like DeSantis and Trump um, in Iowa, which I think is what everybody's looking at now. Are all of these campaigns? Whoever can really get a strong foothold and have a solid performance in Iowa can probably take that momentum to New Hampshire and then South Carolina. At least that's the calculus that I've heard from from the Scott World folks. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's going to be a long shot campaign for him, no doubt. But I think that what they're looking at is one, his money, and two, the fact that he's also got a record as a sitting United States senator that he can run on. Uh, and so, Sharice, back to DeSantis for a second. He said something yesterday I found interesting, uh, talking to, I think, a, a group of, of donors, that there are only three credible candidates today, uh, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and him, Ron DeSantis. And of the of those three... Only two of them have a chance of winning, Joe Bi- uh, the, the general, Joe Biden and Ron DeSantis. Does that ring true, that analysis? No, I, no. I mean, but of course, he's go, he would say that to his donors particularly. He's not going to say, well, yeah. you know, either me or Pence or any of us actually is fine. You know, no, I mean, it, 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 <laughs> of course, he's the best one, the only one who can, who can beat Joe Biden. Um, the reason people like the North... Uh, Dakota governor, whose name I can't even remember at this moment, uh, and and uh, Chris Sununu and uh, Asa Hutchinson, all these people are thinking about running or want to run or have already announced they're running, is that they believe that Donald Trump is going to be a non-issue or a very much more minor issue in the coming months than he has been. And if you if you believe that, then there's then it's a free for all. I mean, DeSantis is a is not a great personable candidate. He wasn't in 2018 when he ran for governor. I remember following him around Florida. He was, he didn't like people. He doesn't like hanging around other human beings. That's a problem when you <laughs> want to be elected to things. And you know, he, they're trying to make him better at that. It's not easy. I mean, it's in his baked into his personality. Um, he's also trying as hard as he can to appeal to the most conservative people in the Republican Party and all the Trump supporters which is kind of mystifying to me because there are 70% of primary voters in the Republican Party who think, yeah, well, I'm open to someone who can win rather than Trump forever. I will mm. vote for Trump if he's in prison. And DeSantis is, appears to be trying to go after the, those people who, who want to go and, and bring cake and, and, and brownies to Trump <laughs> in prison rather than trying to get the 70% who are ready to move on. So, you know, we'll see how this works. But no, I, I don't think he's a lock on the nomination. I don't think He's the only one who could beat Biden. And in fact, the, there's probably only one person who would likely lose to Biden, and that's Trump. Everybody else probably has a decent chance. Uh, D- David Jackson, yesterday, um, uh, uh, they say, totally politically unrelated, uh, Disney suddenly announced that they're going canceling a plan to build a $1 billion employee campus, which would create about 2,500 new jobs in, in Florida. Uh, how's this work for Ron DeSantis? Uh, I'm not sure it does work. I mean, the only question is wh- whether it hurts him or not. It's 
it's, it's fascinating to me because it reflects, if you think about the anti-corporatism of the days of the Republican Party, you know, you think of the yeah. Republicans yeah. as always being pro-business. But ever since Trump came on the scene, you know, Trump had his problems with Wall Street, too. And ever since he came on the scene, the party's taken on a much more populist anti-corporation tinge. So I'm not sure it's going to hurt DeSantis that much in the gen- in the uh, in the Republican race. Uh, mm-hmm. It may hurt him in the general because it's such a, a weird because it's all a personal fight. It's not really a. I don't think it's a philosophical, ideological fight. I think DeSantis is just going after Disney because they criticize his "Don't Say Gay" bill. It's a it's a personal thing, and I think that's going to reflect on him badly with general election voters. But um, I guess the bottom line is, I'm, I'm not sure it's going to mean that much in the Republican primary, but it could mean something in a general if he gets there. Uh, it is strange because uh, uh, you and I, and of a certain generation, always think of the Republican Party as pro-business, right? That's right. Uh, they were, and that's what they bragged them bragged about being. So also uh, Disney, you know, a big big corporation. You know, they've done some things over the years that uh, Democrats have gotten themselves on now. But it seems like everybody switched sides on on Disney <laughs> because of the changes in their management and the DeSantis factor. Well, um, we may not take Ron DeSantis that seriously, but there is one person who does. Donald Trump cannot stop talking about him uh, <laughs> on his uh, Truth Social this uh, couple of days ago, maybe yesterday. He put out a video, uh, again, uh, touching on a point, Maya, that Sharice touched on just a little bit earlier. Uh, here's the former president. The problem with Ron DeSantis is that he needs a personality transplant, and those are not yet available. I would say that when it comes to lack of personality, Ron would be in a class with Asa Hutchinson, and that's not good. Oh, man. Oh, man. Maya, what do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, he really is convinced that DeSantis is a threat, apparently, correct? Absolutely. I think he is. And um, he's also on his home turf. These are two Florida men now, at least in in the case of Trump, a more recent um, Florida resident. And I think this is also a classic Trump grievance moment where he looks at someone like DeSantis, who he really believes that he made politically, who he believes that he whose career he formed politically now feeling uh, betrayed by him or challenged by him. We saw the same thing happen on a, on a different level um, with Brian Kemp in Georgia. Of course, it wasn't for a presidential campaign. It was for election interference. But the way that Trump went directly and repeatedly after the governor of Georgia reminds me a lot of how he's challenging Ron DeSantis in a way. But, of course, we know that Trump really wants to, to win again. And so this is also just not even a, a, a personal um, diatribe, but really a political one where he's just trying his best um, to beat up on Ron DeSantis as much as he can before DeSantis actually launches a campaign so that he can come into the primary um, as a weekend opponent. I think that's also why you see Trump boosting and speaking, you know, relatively positively of people like Vivek Ramaswamy, <laughs> yeah. who, you know, who is pretty much, I think, a long shot candidate. But I believe that Trump has tried to ingratiate himself with him so that he can try to steal some of DeSantis's momentum or take away some of the mm-hmm. would-be uh, support DeSantis supporters. Um, this is all a part of, of, I think, the Trump campaign's playbook here of just making sure that DeSantis is as, in as weak, a, as weak a position as possible and also it's soured on in the minds of voters before he enters the race next week. 
Uh, okay, well, we're going to have to take a break, but before we do, there are just uh, a, a couple of quick uh, political developments this week that I, I have to at least get into the uh, conversation here. Um, so, Sharish, <laughs> uh, you were probably uh, as excited as I was yesterday to learn that Rick Perry is, says he's going to run for president. <laughs> Sure. Uh, well, I, actually, you know, I, I didn't know this would be an appropriate place to announce, but I'm also running for the Republican nomination as well. So I'll just put that out there now. Uh, and, and this is what I'm talking about. I mean, Rick Perry doesn't say he's going to uh, think of running or running unless he thinks that uh, it, it's a wide open field and anyone can win. And mm -hmm. if you think that Donald yeah. Trump is a lock on this, you're not going to waste your time and energy uh, and, and trying to spend hours on the phone begging people for money in order to get into this race. One thing I, I did want to add real quick about the, the DeSantis-Trump uh, thing. Number one, it is true that Ron DeSantis was not going to win that primary in Florida in 2018 without the Trump endorsement. And he did ask Trump for the endorsement. I don't know if he had tears in his eyes and crying, and but he did ask for it. And number two, um, his top aide right now is, is Trump's is, is Susie Wiles who was dumped by Ron DeSantis and kind of exiled from Florida politics mm. and Trump mm. brought her back in. So there's a little bit of personal vengeance mm -hmm. going on here behind the scenes that, you know, most mm. of my audience doesn't That's... care about, but I, I think that explains yeah. a little of this going after DeSantis. Uh, that's interesting. And uh, Maya, maybe one of the, or David, I'm sorry, one of the strangest things I found in politics this week, uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr., RFK Jr., is running for president, and he named his campaign manager for president this week. Running RFK Jr.'s campaign, of course, is going to be former Congressman Dennis Kucinich. Yes. David, some people just never go away, right? Exactly. I remember reading about Dennis Kucinich when I was a high school student back in the 1970s. So, yeah, it's uh, he's been a constant feature in American politics for more than half a century. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know what to think. I mean, you know, we've had polling here at USA Today, Kennedy getting close to 20 percent of the vote. And really? I, I kind of believe oh. that number. He's just just being an alternative is going to actually get yeah. him a few votes if he's the only real name elsewhere on the ballot. So he's, he's going to get a little bit of attention, I think, when the Democratic mm. primaries roll around. But I, I just don't think it's tenable long term. Yeah. And the Kennedy name does still have uh, some right. resonance with uh, with a lot of Democrats. And and Maya, uh, what's is he going to or is he not going to run? I'm talking about Chris Christie. <laughs> That's a that's a great question, and I think the central the central question there is that um, one thing that Christie said that stood out to me is you know I'm not going to be the only person on the debate stage who's beating up on Trump, and it can't just be me. And I just don't I think that's the role that he plays now as someone yeah. who's yeah. in the Republican Party to criticize Trump. Um, is that enough to actually get him a considerable amount of support that would really make for a viable presidential campaign? I'm not sure. But um, it has proven, I guess, in more recent uh, months to to be an important position to hold, nonetheless. Well, he was the only one in 2016, and um, so far he's the only one in 2023, right? <laughs> so we'll see uh, whether that translates into actual candidacy. Uh, and with that, a quick pause here now on the uh, the Bill Press Pod in today's roundtable with Sharice uh, Date, Maya King, and David Jackson. And then we'll come back and uh, look at some other news of the week here. And today's 
Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod is brought to you by the International Association of Firefighters. 335,000 strong firefighters and paramedics across the United States and Canada. These good men and women are on the front lines, as we know, every day protecting our families. We thank them for their good work uh, under President Edward A. Kelly. Uh, and uh, we saw some big, huge fires in Charlottesville this week and Portland, Oregon, just reminding us again the great job that our firefighters and paramedics do. Uh, again, thank them for their great work and thank them for their longtime support of the Bill Press Pod. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back on the Bill Press Pod. Today's Reporters Roundtable joining us, David Jackson, National Political Correspondent for USA Today, Sharish Date, White House Correspondent for HuffPost, and Maya King, Political Reporter for the New York Times, uh, and she is now based in Atlanta. Uh, Maya, uh, as we look across the, um, the political spectrum, the one issue that Republicans have seized on, it seems, uh, for 2024 is the issue of abortion. Despite um, a backlash uh, against several candidates after the Supreme Court's uh, Roe v. Wade decision, we have seen now, I think, some 26 states, red states, that have introduced uh, limits on abortion, 14 of which have introduced, have enacted a total ban on abortion. And we saw um, action in North Carolina and South Carolina this week. Uh, what's going on? Is this the real winning issue for Republicans? No. Um, and if you ask any uh, either moderate Republican strategist or someone who's kind of close to the ground, a lot of them are saying, at least very privately, that they feel this is only going to further alienate them from the suburban women that they need and also moderate and independent voters um, that they're really hoping to tap into. It is interesting to see, though, uh, the way that, especially in these state houses across the country, this has really become the captive issue. It's almost as if the Republican Party has become beholden to this 
um, slice of the electorate that is not a majority, a, min- a minority within the Republican base, about 30 percent, the same people in large part who are still planning to support and vote for uh, former President Donald Trump. But, you know, at the same rate that you see a lot of Republicans pushing for this um, or pushing for further abortion restrictions, I think you could also say that Democrats are planning to make abortion a huge part of their 2024 message. But on the opposite side, of course, saying we plan to protect people's right to choose and access and um, to the procedure, and of course, the overall overarching uh, theme here of bodily autonomy, proved to be a pretty winning issue in, in these tighter races and has helped Democrats. I think in large part, this is what they point to um, when they say that they had a better than expected midterm cycle. It's because a lot of voters really turned off, particularly by Republicans' moves on abortion. We'll see if that actually carries in 24, but it is um, befuddling to me at least on the ground, to see the way that this has become the animating issue uh, ahead of next year's election. Uh, David, in your in your reporting, you talked to uh, a lot of Republican um, consultants and candidates, and not just Democrats. Uh, do they do Republicans really see that this is the issue that's going to bring them, you know, take them back to the White House and to the Congress? Um, not many Republicans that I know. I, I know that the. Uh, anti-abortion activists feel like that it is a winning issue, but I think they're kind of lost in their own bubble there. It's it's a, a good issue in red states, but the Republicans are already in, in command there. I, the, the question is uh, battleground states. You mentioned North Carolina. That's a classic example. I think that's the I think that's Joe Biden's best chance of taking a state that Trump won in 2020. And I think mm-hmm. abortion is going to be a big part of their pitch there. I, I just don't see how uh, how this issue helps the Republicans in these close battleground states, places like Pennsylvania and uh, Michigan and Wisconsin and, and those kind of places. And in fact, I think it's counterproductive. So I, I think it's just a, a classic example of someone who is kind of trapped in their own ideology and seems to think that uh, the entire country agrees with their friends and on the importance of this issue. And I just don't think it's going to play out like they think. Uh, and, you know, so, Sharish, it's not just okay, we want to overturn Roe v. Wade, and they got that, right? Now it's the national ban, right? That's what they want, a national ban. Um, And here, so here's Donald Trump um, on Newsmax, by the way, a day or so, but in a phone call with Newsmax. But he also said this in the CNN debate last week uh, up in New Hampshire. First of all, I'm the one that got rid of Roe v. Wade, and everybody said that was an impossible thing to do. I put on three Supreme Court justices. So he's the one responsible. He's taking credit. At the same time, Donald Trump will not say that he, yet say that he supports a national ban. Right. Well, first of all, let me just correct the former president there. Uh, he did not appoint three Supreme Court justices. Leonard Leo of the Federal <laughs> Society appointed them. Right. And so let's just be clear. I was happened to yeah. be with uh, Mike Pence, who's been pro-life, what is it, entire life. Right. And, and no question yeah. about that. I happened to be with him in South Carolina last year when the Dobbs decision leaked. And he was saying, finally, the states will be able to uh, decide this issue. And this is such an important issue. It belongs at the state level. And I asked him, you know, he had a gaggle. And I asked him, look, you know, kidnapping is a federal crime. Kidnapping is illegal in one state just as it is is in another uh, because it's a federal law. And we don't differentiate that bank robbery. All kinds of stuff are federal crimes. If life begins at conception, then 
why should not that be a federal crime and, and equally, equally applicable mm -hmm. everywhere? And he came right back to, well, this is such an important issue. It should be decided at the state level and the states know best. And so that was the smart um, attitude toward this, right? Just a year ago among Republicans. And then, of course, people were now want to cater to the those who believe that it should be illegal everywhere all the time, no matter what. And so here we are. Now Pence is, is going to be forced into saying something about six weeks, eight weeks, 12. Well, what's the appropriate point for a national abortion ban? And it's, this is like an electoral disaster for them. I can't believe that they have, you know, I, they're walking into this knowing full well that this is going to hurt them in the general election, just as it did in the midterms. And yet here they are. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know what to say, but it, um, they're all doing it, including Trump. Mm -hmm. And I'll add very quickly to Sharisha's point. I was with Tim Scott in Charleston several weeks ago when he was sort of doing this like heroes tour campaign, um, teasing his presidential run. And a reporter asked him then about his stance on abortion. And he sort of waffled back and forth on, you know, what weeks he would want the ban uh, to take place, whether he agreed with his, his fellow senator from South Carolina, Lindsey Graham, who was proposing 15 weeks. I mean, he really, it was like one of his first policy questions as a prospective uh, Republican candidate for the presidential nomination. And he was really unable to articulate that very clearly exactly what he would like to see. So I just wanted to point that out to say, yes, this is going to be a huge issue and a challenge, I think, that a lot of Republicans don't realize that they have to face down. So David Jackson, politically, this could be the classic case of the dog catching, finally catching the car, right? That's something the Republican Party had made their mission to overturn Roe v. Wade could end up uh, hurting the party more than helping it. Yes, and I'm no, I know Republicans who've expressed that fear for you know at least a decade, as long as I've been covering politics. You know, it's funny to hear Trump take credit for this. I mean, the movement to ban or the movement to overturn Roe versus Wade has been going on for more than forty years, so it's just, it's not something new. And I'm afraid a lot of Republicans really kind of dreaded this day, and they felt like it would be a problem in certain states. And the prospect of a national of national abortion policy makes them you know makes it even more uh, problematic for them. I think so. Yeah, it's uh, you're right. It's the dog catching the car, and I think it's going to be it's going to be a big anchor on whoever gets nominated for president. Um, all right. So, Sharika, another big unanswered question this week: Is George Santos going to survive? <laughs> I don't care. I mean, you know, this is like the most ridiculous <laughs> thing. We're all wasting so much energy on. I mean, Donald Trump lies more in a week than George Santos does in a month. <laughs> and yet we obsess over this with this congressman from what Long Island or someplace. He's going to lose or he's going to go to prison or both. What does it matter? I mean, you know, uh, it, it, he'll probably survive. Yeah. I mean, Duncan Hunter was under indictment, was he not? I mean, when he uh, when he won re-election. And so eventually he'll be convicted of something and, and that'll be that. And until then, it's like... He's providing uh, column inches and fodder for us on uh, on, on the internets, right? And uh, and of course, uh, the margin that Kevin McCarthy has is so slim that he really can't afford to lose. Not even George Santos. So they'll do whatever they can, I think, to uh, to protect him. Um, but that as that resulted in a little shouting match, Maya, uh, between some Democratic members of Congress 
on the steps of the United States Capitol over George Santos and um, Democratic leader uh, Hakeem Jeffries uh, stepped in and had something to say about who was behind uh, most of this um, uh, disruption on the Republican side. Here's uh, Leader Jeffries. On Wednesday, extreme MAGA Republicans in the House defend, coddle, and continue to play footsie with serial fraudster George Santos. And on Thursday, they want to impeach the president, the FBI director, who was appointed by a Republican president. And who is the face of this effort? Marjorie Taylor Greene. There you go, Maya. Georgia keeps coming back to Georgia. Absolutely. (laughs) But it is amazing to me how much influence this woman who was once considered just this real outlier that Kevin McCarthy has made her a major player. And, you know, we've talked a lot on this show about that and the role that she stands to play in this in this Republican Party as an influencer, as someone who has the ear of the speaker. Um, But I think that also Democrats need to be careful of making her sort of this boogeyman on the right. I mean, this is sort of we already know, um, I think, what her M.O. is, which is largely attention driven, not really policy driven. And she just feels like she's becoming more of a caricature of the right. Yet at the same time, I mean, this was the role that Trump played, too. So I feel like people like Green and like Santos are borrowing uh, it's from different parts of the Trump playbook. Green, who's sort of living for the attention and and playing off of it, and then you know throwing these kind of firebombs and then hiding her hands. And Santos, who has now been arrested and is saying that he is a is is a that it's calling it a political witch hunt <laughs> to borrow directly from from Trump's language. Right. Um, so this kind of feels just like a, a repeat of what we saw happening in 2016. Uh, yeah, I know. I'd have to agree that the less we talk about Santos and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, the better off the American people are. But, you know, it's just hard to resist, I guess, <laughs> yeah, at any rate. Uh, good job looking uh, uh, back at this week and picking up on the main stories of the week. And a big thank you to David Jackson, to Mike King and Cherise Date, today's panelists. Uh, but again, we won't let you go into the weekend without uh, just tell us, What's the one story that really caught your attention this week and stopped you in your tracks? Um, our favorite stories of the week. We'll start with you, David Jackson. Uh, mine is from the world of uh, book publishing. Uh, this oh. is the week that saw the publication of uh, Jonathan Igg's biography of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to confess, I have, I have a bias here. I worked with John back at the Dallas Morning News back during the 1990s. But he's an outstanding uh, writer and an outstanding researcher. He did the the quintessential work on Muhammad Ali, and now he's done Martin Luther King, and it's a it's a very well paced, uh, well researched uh, biography of a of a very great American whose issues still resonate today, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Well, uh, there's a great review, a very positive review of that book in uh, this this current edition of the New Yorker magazine. Um, right, uh, I just read it uh, yesterday, and can't wait to read the book myself. Oh, good point, David. Sharice Date, what caught your attention? Well, uh, I, I don't know if actually this was an actual article or it was just a statement put out by the, the, the former coup attempting president, which complained that 80% or so of the, or more of the the Republican legislators in Florida were backing Ron DeSantis for president. They said the only reason that they're doing that is he's threatened to veto their projects in the budget. And that's 
why they're doing it. And, and I just, because, <laughs> you know, hold, being vindictive and doing threats would be wrong, right? I mean, that's not something that we do coming from, from Donald Trump. So I, I just, I love that now suddenly he got a sense of, of, of propriety and morality here. Trump does give us uh, lots to scratch our head about, right? Or laugh about for sure. <laughs> uh, and Maya King, uh, your favorite story. Yeah, um, I think speaking to this ongoing conversation about Ron DeSantis and his personality or lack thereof, uh, Michael Cruz at Politico has a really great profile of Casey DeSantis, Ron DeSantis's wife, mm. and the role that she's going to play on the campaign. Not only is someone who is, um, I think, going to make a lot of strategic decisions and already has, but also someone who's going to fill in those gaps in personality that DeSantis is uh-huh. lacking. Uh-huh. So it opens with this great scene in Cedar Rapids uh, where DeSantis and his wife are speaking to a crowd of, of Republican activists and, and sort of party supporters. And the first question that he get that she gets, Casey gets, is tell us about your husband. And she just sort of goes into this long, um, I guess, laundry list of things about him. But just you know that he's a dad, and that he was a firefighter, and that you know he went to Jackson, that he lived in Jacksonville, and went to Yale and played baseball. All the things that you might expect a candidate actually to want to say himself, but DeSantis has not really made a point. Huh. Of um, speaking about his own personal biography on the stump. He's just talked so much about uh, the Florida blueprint. So, um, you know, it's, you don't often see a lot of stories about the wives on the trail, at least this early. Um, but I thought this was a really, really great look at someone who we will probably see a lot more of and someone who's going to play an important role in, uh, in this challenge to the former president. You know, I haven't, I haven't, I've seen that article. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I can't wait because the headline attracted uh, and intrigued me, where it says that Casey DeSantis is probably his biggest uh, asset and his biggest liability at the same time. So I'm curious about the liability <laughs> side of it. We'll see. What? Yeah, yeah uh, that's I'll what the head- read that myself. That's what the headline is. I don't know what. <laughs> Can't wait to read it. Well, I got to tell you. First of all, I had a hard time. Uh, I really wanted to go with uh, uh, Martha Stewart being on the cover of Sports Illustrated. <laughs> I mean, 81 is too old to run for president, but not too old to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated in a bathing suit. Uh, I thought that was funny. But my real favorite story of the week is. A story about Senator Feinstein, uh, and I first saw this in Politico, returning to Washington, and the story was about the mysterious woman who accompanied Senator Feinstein. Uh, and she happens to be not the Senator Feinstein's daughter, but Nancy Corrine Prouda, who is Nancy Pelosi's daughter, uh, known in the family as Little Nancy. And I've known for a long time that she's been the most important person uh, with Senator Feinstein and helping her through this uh, horrible battle that she had with shingles in San Francisco. And she's now accompanied her, her back here to Washington. Uh, and I just thought that this story showed so much, uh, such an insight into San Francisco politics, which I really know well. Uh, it's a remarkable story how two women, Nancy Pelosi and Diane Feinstein, both about the same time, uh, their families had always been very, very close and both of those two women who are active as kind of volunteers in politics, they came out of that male-dominated political circle uh, and ran for office themselves, one for the House, one for the Senate, and they ended up being the two most powerful 
women in California political history and two of the most ever in national political history. Uh, and their families just still remain close. And I think that I never think I don't think it's been reported enough that in California, especially in San Francisco, it's not just politics. It's really about family. Uh, and I thought uh, that story proved it once and for all. And with that, again, a great big thank you to today's panel, uh, Sharish Date from HuffPost, uh, Maya King from the New York Times, and David Jackson from USA Today. Thank you, guys. Great job. And thanks to all of you for listening. We hope you have a great weekend. We will be back on Tuesday with the next edition of the Bill Press Pod, where we're going to be talking with Keith Ellison, the Attorney General for the state of Minnesota, who was also tapped by the governor to lead the prosecution of the four policemen charged in the murder of George Floyd. Uh, And Keith Ellison has written a powerful new book about that called Break the Wheel. We'll be talking with Keith Ellison about the George Floyd uh, uh, case and also about uh, cases of uh, still continuing cases of excess use of force by police across the nation and what we can do about it. That's next on the Bill Press Pod. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll see you Tuesday on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.